victory truly is his. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. You know, I'm just amazed at how God works in his providence and his sovereignty. You know, this morning, uh, the message that I'm going to preach, I hadn't planned to preach this, and it's just kind of a standalone, uh, a one-off, if you will, and uh, next week we will finish our series in Proverbs. Uh, but when we planned this worship set, um, you know, back in July, early July, I believe, uh, to see how it lined up with what the Lord is having me preach today. It's just incredible to see how God works outside of time to plan things out ahead. And because this morning, the title of the message is, it's all about Christ. And just to see how our worship set came together this morning, where we've made much of Christ and uh, where the gospel was the center uh, focus of our worship this morning. And I'm just excited to be here this morning and to gather with you uh, this week. Um, so this week's message, it may feel a little, especially in the beginning of it, it may feel a little theological. It may feel a little heady, if you will, but I just want to encourage you to stay with me because it's going to get immensely practical at the end. It's going to start and I, like a little bit more where you have to think a little bit. You have to kind of stay with me and we're going to, at the end, it's going to get extremely practical. So it's a little bit of a different message for me. Um, and also, uh, I just want to say up front that I'm not necessarily feeling my normal self this morning. Um, this week, I was taking a few days with my family um, at a lake on Cayuga Lake in New York, and I went for a bike ride um, early in the week, and long story short, I had an accident. I'm not, it was one of those accidents where I'm not sure what happened, because I bumped my head, and, um, and I know, like, you're ready, were you wearing a helmet? Do I look like a guy who wears a helmet? <laughs> but uh, I've had a lot of bike accidents in my life, and um, uh, this is the first time that I thought, you know what, I should have probably had a helmet on, um, because I believe, I don't really know what happened, all right, so it kind of tells you the extent of how much I bumped my head, but I think my head was the first thing that made contact with the asphalt, and I'm not sure if I was knocked out or not, I don't really know, but, um, and so I believe that made concussion number eight for me, so that explains a lot of things, <laughs> but it's been a lot of years since I had one, um, I think 25, 26 years since I've had my seventh, and now this is eight, And uh, but this was, so um, if you like wonder what's wrong with you this morning, like, that's my scapegoat for today. Well, you know, this morning what I really want to dive into is what is the purpose of this book? What is the overarching story? What is the meta-narrative? And the meta-narrative, uh, what it means, the meta-narrative means the, uh, the overarching story. In this book, we will see there's, there's four basic like, like buckets of the meta-narrative. Uh, the first is creation. And the two buckets, the, f- the first two buckets within the meta-narrative of Scripture take place in the first three chapters of Genesis. We see creation. And then in Genesis 3, we see the fall. Genesis 1 and 2, we see creation. That's the first part of the meta-narrative, the overarching story. The second part is the fall. And then from th- then we begin to see the anticipation of the redemptive part of the meta-narrative. So it's creation, it's a fall, and then it's the redemption. And then at the end of it all, of the meta-narrative, at the end of the story, the overarching story, is the consummation. It's Christ's return, his kingdom established, uh, his authority over all his enemies. He will crush his enemies under his feet. That's the consummation. That's the final chapter of the story of the meta-narrative. And we have to see, as we read scripture, 
as we read this book, that there is a meta-narrative, an overarching story. And the overarching story is it's all about Christ. It's all about Christ. He is the creator. So we started in the four kind of uh, buckets of the meta-narrative. Creation, Christ is the creator. Uh, Christ in Genesis, he was the one who created everything, the second person of the Trinity. We see that so, so much, or all throughout Scripture, that Christ is the actual creator. He is the one uh, who walked in the garden on the cool of the day. Like all of those things. He's the creator. It's all about Christ. He's the creator. He's the redeemer. He's the Lord. And I think sometimes what's hard is to, how do we relate it to ourselves? How does this relate to me? And I think so often we try to read ourselves into the story. And we do have a part in God's grand scheme. And in, in, he, he's created us as image bearers. But when we, if we don't read the Bible through gospel lenses, through the lens that it's all about Christ, we become very confused. We will lose touch with what it's about and, and where, how do I apply it to my life? See, the reality is it's not about us. It's about Christ. It's about Christ. It's always been about Christ. And it's so important that we read Scripture and we interpret Scripture through gospel lenses. And as we read Scripture through Genesis, uh, through, uh, from Genesis to Revelation, it's full of narratives and little stories that are all part of a bigger story. And so many of the narratives and the little stories that go throughout Scripture are connecting to the God's redemptive plan. And they are metaphors and pictures of what is coming and what will happen. In the Old Testament, we will see today, um, it reveals Christ. And the Gospels reveal Christ. And Acts reveals Christ. And the Epistles reveal Christ. And Revelation reveals Christ, the book of Revelation. But I want to start this morning in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, making, he, and making known to us the mystery of his will, whose will? The Father's, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, that's Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So God's redemptive plan, the plan of redemption, was always part of God's plan. Uh, he, this wasn't something that he had to plan B once the fall happened. It was always part of God's redemptive plan. It was all, God knew that Adam and Eve would fall. He knew that it would happen. Galatians 4, verse uh, 4, But when the fullness of time had come, when it was ready, when time was where the Lord God, the Father, wanted it, God sent forth his Son, the second person of the Trinity, born of a woman, born under the law. Now this, again, speaks of God's divine plan, his will. That from the beginning till now, everything that has happened has always been about Christ. In the book of Hebrews, we're not going to spend any time there this morning, but if we could, um, the book of Hebrews traces... A lot of Old Testament character stories to God's redemptive plan. And you know, Hebrews 11, that sometimes people refer to it as the Hall of Faith. You remember? Like the Hall of Faith, Abraham and Rahab. And honestly, if you know the story of those people, it's not the Hall of Faith as much as the Hall of Losers. 
Like, I mean, if you know their stories and what they did, but it's part of God's redemptive plan. God shows us that even people like Abraham and Rahab, he can use powerfully because it's ultimately about Christ's redemptive work. And they were looking ahead and we look back. It's always been about Christ. Different stories, characters, all moving to one thing. It's all about Jesus. And so this morning, before we get to our outline, why don't we just bow our heads in prayer? Father, we are so grateful to be gathered together. We're so grateful for your love and your mercy, your grace. We're so thankful for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're so thankful for your redemptive plan that you gave to us through Jesus Christ. Father, I pray this morning for each person who's here this morning that they would see the glory of the gospel. And for those who are here this morning who are believers, but their love has grown cold, they become a bit indifferent to the things of Christ, I pray that you would fan the flame within them again, that they would see the majesty and the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray for those who are here this morning who don't yet know you. I pray that this morning you would open their eyes to see their desperate need of the gospel of Jesus Christ and that you would radically save them for your glory. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Point number one, we're going to start in the Old Testament. The Old Testament uh, is Christ's anticipation. The Old Testament anticipates Christ. We see it right away in Genesis. In Genesis 1, um, we see creation, Genesis 1 and 2. We see God's uh, creation. We see the creation account. And then in Genesis 3, we see the fall of mankind, where Adam and Eve ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what God had forbid them from eating from, and they ate from that, and mankind fell into sin, and everyone who has lived since, every human being since has inherited the sin nature from Adam and Eve. All of us. But we see the anticipation of Christ happen right away. We said that like part of God's, the meta-narrative of Scripture, it starts with the creation account, then the fall of man, and then redemption. The fall and redemption, the plan of redemption starts in Genesis 3, Genesis 3.15. Now this is after the Lord, like the Lord God, Christ, the second person of the Trinity, he's there with them, and he says to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Here it is. And I will put enmity. This is tension, uh, uh, strife, uh, uh, battle between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So what he, this is what we call the proto-evangelium. It's the first gospel, the proclamation, the first time where in Scripture we see the anticipation of Christ, the Messiah. And he says that, that Satan, the serpent, the enemy, will bruise his heel, but Christ, the Messiah, the anticipated one, will bruise his head. Now, we know that uh, heel wounds are not nearly as bad as head wounds, right? And so, like, 
Satan would bruise Christ's heel. That's his crucifixion, his death, his burial. But in the end, God would, or Christ would bruise his head. That's his final victory at his resurrection. And he is victorious over Satan, sin, hell, of, hell and death. But we see right away in Genesis 3, two elements. Um, the curse of sin on mankind and God's provision for salvation. We see it show up right away in Genesis 3, these two elements. But Christ is anticipated. See, at, at birth, in our humanity, we inherit, just like we, we inherit nature's uh, characteristics, uh, behaviors from our family. You know, because from our father, from our mother, we, we inherit certain character traits. But from Adam, we all have inherited his sin nature. And that puts enmity that makes us enemies of God. And we see this, this is all throughout scripture that we see the result of our sin, but we see that God's redemptive plan. So in the Old Testament, Christ was anticipated. If we go back up to Genesis chapter 3 verse 8, just a few verses prior to what I just read, it says, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord said to them, the Lord called out to them, where are you? Now, when it says the Lord God was walking in the garden of the cold of the day, this means Christ, the second person of the Trinity. That's who was walking in the garden on the cold of the day. So he's not only anticipated, he's present right there in the Old Testament. Christ is already there. And then in Genesis 3, 21, and the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and he clothed them. Christ second person of the Trinity, who's anticipated, he's present. Now he's already covering the nakedness of Adam and Eve. He killed animals. The first blood was shed, and he took their skins, and he clothed them. Now this is a picture of what Christ will do for us at the cross. At the cross, he took on sin for us so he could give to us and cover us with his righteousness. I don't stand before the Lord because I'm righteous. I stand before the Lord clothed in Christ's righteousness. See, that's like, it's not mine. It's not mine. I don't stand there in mine because mine is worthless. It's of no value, but I stand before the Lord clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And all of this is metaphored and pictured all the way back in Genesis 3. You have to see it. It's all part of the meta narrative, the overarching story. Christ was anticipated. He was present. He was working all the way back in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 2. It's a story that many of us are familiar with in Genesis chapter 2. Abraham, he was asked by the Lord to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. Now, Isaac was a promised child to Abraham. Uh, he was his only son whom he loved. There's so many pictures. If you look at the story of Abraham and Isaac and what God asked Abraham to do with Isaac, they compare to the story of the father with the son. Abraham was asked by God to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, whom he loved. Now, we can't, in our finite minds, understand this. But Abraham was obedient, and God told him to go to the area where Mount Moriah was. And so they set out on a multiple-day journey towards this mountain. He had two people with them, two of his servants with them. And when they got close, he left them behind, and he strapped the wood that he intended to use to build the altar 
to sacrifice his teenage, most likely a teenage son on. He strapped it on his son Isaac's back. And Isaac walked up Mount Moriah. Do you see the comparison? Who else carried wood up a hill to be sacrificed? Christ. Do you know Mount Moriah? Mount Moriah was a place where probably a thousand years later, David bought a threshing floor and he built an altar there so that God would keep a plague from the people. Later, his son Solomon built the temple there. And it's where the city, the old city, or the old city of Jerusalem was built. Many historians believe that the very mount that Isaac, that Abraham and Isaac walked up to sacrifice Isaac is where the temple was built, and most likely right in that area is where Christ was crucified. Do you see the similarities, the metaphors, the pictures? It was anticipated, and God was revealing and showing little pictures. And do you know that Isaac, he was probably a teenager, a young man. His father was old. He was an old man. And I don't know about you guys, but when you get old and you try to scrap with your uh, teenage sons, it just doesn't go well. Not nearly as good as it used to. You know, it's just, it's just, it doesn't go well. And if your boys wrestle, it's really bad. It's just really bad. And I am certain Abraham couldn't have physically forced Isaac on that altar. But Isaac, in obedience, submitted to his father's will to see the similarities. But we can't comprehend it. We don't need to. But in the end, when I, Abraham was about ready to kill his son Isaac to sacrifice him, God, the Lord God said, stop. And he provided a ram who would be the sacrifice. You have to see the similarities. You have to understand Christ was anticipated all the way back in Genesis. And it flows all the way up through uh, all the way up through the Old Testament, Isaiah 7, verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, and behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. That means God with us. Like Isaiah the prophet, hundreds of years before, prophesied that a virgin would conceive and bear a child. And like if you know biology, you're like, well, that's not possible. Right? That's what we think. But that's not... Because it was supernatural. It was in Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a psalm that David wrote that gives many pictures and metaphors of what would happen with Christ. In Psalm 22, he says in verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where else have we heard that? When Jesus was hanging on the cross, just before he gave up his spirit and he died, he said what? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22. That's what Jesus did. He's quoting Psalm 22 because David prophesied, anticipating the Messiah. He anticipated him. Later on in Psalm 22, in the same book, uh, the same Psalm, verse 7, all who seek, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. That's what happened to Christ at the cross. He's prophesying. He's seeing into the future. Verse 16, for dogs encompass me and a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. All of those things happened to Christ at the cross. 
is anticipating him. The Old Testament anticipates him. I could go on, Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, the prophet Isaiah prophesied how he would die. He, he saw it, he anticipated it. The Old Testament, Christ's anticipation, you have to see it. Started all the way back in, in Genesis 3.15, the proto-evangelium, the anticipation of Christ, the Savior. The Old Testament, Christ's anticipation. Number two, the gospel, Christ's manifestation. So the Old Testament, it's Christ anticipated. Now the gospels, what was anticipated is made manifest. That's what we see right again. So again, remember the meta-narrative. The meta-narrative is creation, the fall, redemption, and the consummation. So in the story of redemption, now the Redeemer is made manifest. It was anticipated, and now he's made manifest. In Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 2, when the, uh, when the angel of the Lord was announcing to the shepherds um, of, in, you know, announcing the birth or the manifestation of the Savior, we read like this. In the, in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over the flocks by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. So you need to understand what, what is happening here. The angel was announcing to the shepherds that the one they anticipated, the one that they believed would come, the Messiah, the Christ, he is now born. He is being born unto them. The, the anticipated was manifest. Christ had arrived. Now, if we go to Mark's gospel, um, Mark chapter 1, when we see Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 4, it talks about John the Baptist. He was the, the one who prepared the way for the Lord. He was the forerunner. And he was baptizing people. And he said that there's one coming after him who's mightier than I. And the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. And so he's saying, this Christ, the anticipated one, he is here. He's coming. He's, he's here. And he said, I'm not even worthy to not only untie his sandals, he said, I'm not even worthy to stoop down in front of him to untie his sandals. But yet we know from other gospels that Jesus then went to John the Baptist while he was out in the wilderness baptizing people and asked John the Baptist to baptize him. And John, John didn't want to because he didn't feel worthy. But here in Mark's gospel, we see that John did. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he, that's Christ, came up out of the water, look, we're going to see all three people of the Trinity, all three persons of the Trinity, the Godhead. And when he, Christ, came up out of the water, so there's the Son. He just came up out of the water. Immediately, the heavens, I saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit, there's a third person, uh, descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven, this is, my, this is the Father, says, You are my son, beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We see, like, we know now that this is the Christ. All three people, all three persons of the Trinity. The Father, this is my Son. The Son come up out. This is my Son. The Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove. In verse 14 and 15, it says, After John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came proclaiming and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. 
Now, the gospel is such an important part of God's redemptive plan. And we'll get to that in a moment. But if we go on to Mark chapter 8, we won't turn there right now, but in Mark chapter 8, Jesus had just healed a blind man. And you see in the narrative, Jesus, they brought a blind man to Jesus. Jesus spit in his eyes. Now, can you imagine if you're a blind guy and, you know, I mean, come on, let's just spit. Like, Jesus spit in his eyes and, and, and he asked the man, can you see? And he says, I see people, but they look like trees. So, like, he was, it's, it's, now, did Jesus need to spit in his eyes to heal him? No. Why did Jesus spit in his eyes? I don't have a clue. I don't know. He spit in his eyes. And, but, and the man could see partially, but not fully. He saw people, but they looked like trees. And then, so Jesus lays his hands on him again. And, he, and, and then he said, now can you see? And his vision was restored perfectly. But after that, he said to his disciples, who do, you, who do people say that I am? He said, some people say you're John the Baptist, and others say you're, you know, you're, you're one of the prophets. And he's like, but who do you say I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The anticipated one of the Old Testament was being made manifest right here in the Gospels. In Jesus, at Jesus' death in Matthew 27, after the earthquake and the, and, and the, the land that went dark and the temple veil was torn in two, he says that one of the centurions said, truly, this man was the son of God. He was made manifest. They knew it. In Luke chapter 24, the day, after, or the day of Christ's resurrection, it said that Christ was, he, he all of a sudden appeared to two people who were walking on the way to Emmaus. They were walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And, and they were down and Christ was like, what's wrong with you guys? And they're like, well, haven't you heard? And, and like, you know, the, the this person was crucified, and we thought he was the one who would, they thought he was the Messiah. And, and so Jesus explained himself to them, starting the book of Moses. What is that? Genesis. Started in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and number of the five books of Moses. And then he goes on, and he says, and all the prophets. So all the way up to the Old Testament, he revealed to them, interpreted them the things concerning himself. It's manifest. The anticipated one that the Old Testament anticipated and prophesied, he's now manifest in front of them. We see in the Gospels, Christ's manifestation. Number three, the book of Acts, Christ's proclamation. Now, okay, so he was anticipated in the Old Testament. This is, again, about the meta-narrative, the overarching story of creation, the fall, redemption, and the consummation, all of that. This is all part of it. The Old Testament was his anticipation. The Gospels, his manifestation. Now we get to the book of Acts, and it's his proclamation. They begin to proclaim who he is in Acts chapter 2. Now for point number 3, we'll be in, in the book of Acts. So if you want to uh, flip over um, to the book of Acts, I'm going to start in chapter, uh, chapter 2, um, where Peter preached at the day of Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost arrived, Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, as verse 14, verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, because it's all about Christ, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised them up. But God raised them up. I, I love, like, this was always part of God's plan. You see this? 
It's what it says. According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He's proclaiming Christ. In Acts chapter 2, it starts out right away, proclaiming Christ. If we go to verse, over to verse 29, he says, Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us today, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. That's what we see in so many of the Psalms. He's, he was foreseeing, he was prophesying about the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. And that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus... God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. And he goes on, and he proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it says the people were cut to the heart, and they asked what they should do. And he said, repent, and be baptized, every one of you. It was proclaimed. And then if we go to Acts chapter 16, Acts chapter 16, and we move from Peter to Paul. And now in Acts chapter 16, the portion of scripture I want to go to is where um, Peter, I'm sorry, Paul, and Silas were in prison in Philippi. And an earthquake came. And the, the doors of the prison were flung open. And the Philippian jailer saw that the doors were open. And he thought the prisoners had escaped. So he drew his sword. He was going to take his own life. But Paul's like, wait, don't do it. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out. And said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's all about Christ. It's, always, it's only ever been about Christ. It's always been about Christ. His life, his death, his burial and resurrection. The Old Testament, he was prophesied and anticipated. The gospels, he was made manifest. Now in Acts, he's being proclaimed. They're proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. We could go to Acts chapter 17 where Paul was in Thessalonica and he's proclaiming. He says, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. He's like, this is the one that was anticipated. You have to understand the meta narrative, the overarching story of scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Acts, it's about Christ's proclamation. Number four, the epistles. Now we're moving there. The epistles, Christ's explanation. Now begins to explain Christ, the gospel, how it works, how we are justified, redeemed, reconciled by the blood of Christ. All of these things begin to be explained. It also explains how Christians then in response to the gospel should in fact live our lives. All of these things are explained, but Christ is explained. We're going to start in Romans. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. Therefore... Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. See what he says here? By faith, by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have obtained this access. We have been justified by faith. Now, if we go over to uh, the same chapter um, Romans 5, verse 6, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That was for you and for me. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us. Since therefore, we have now been justified by his blood. Listen to that word, justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We have been justified by the blood of Christ. So now he's explaining the gospel to us. He's explaining what Christ has done for us. See, Christ came, the anticipated one, is made manifest in the gospels. He's proclaimed in the Acts. And now Paul in Romans is explaining how this works. Christ came. He lived the life that you intended to live. He lived, he fulfilled the law of God perfectly. Why? So he could, in essence, Earn your salvation. We can earn it because we have sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of our sin is death, eternal death, separation from a holy God. But Christ came, lived his life perfectly, fulfilled the law perfectly so he could go to the cross and we and shed his blood, die our death, absorb the wrath of God on our behalf so that we could be justified by his blood. His blood was shed. So that we could be forgiven. This word justified means to be legally declared set free from the penalty of our sin. Debt has been paid. It's like the judge. God slams the gavel down at the moment of our salvation. When we put our faith, hope, and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. At that moment, he says they are justified. At that moment. And now, here's the thing. If you're justified, you're justified for eternity. Because it says... If you believe in the Son of God, you have what? Eternal life. You can't have eternal life and then not have eternal life. Because if you don't have it, then you, what you had wasn't eternal. You have eternal life. You're justified by Christ, by his finished work. God declares you righteous. And then it says that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That means you can't separate yourself from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus if you are his child because you're adopted at that moment into the family of God. When God justifies you, he declares you legally free from the penalty of your sin. And at that same moment, he adopts you into the family of God. And once you're a child of God, you're always a child of God. being explained the gospel first corinthians 5 7 for christ our passover lamb has been sacrificed do you remember back in genesis 22 when god provided for abraham a lamb to sacrifice and just before the children of israel left egypt they sacrificed the passover lamb and the blood of the lamb was sprinkled on the doorpost and on the threshold. And when the angel of death from the Lord passed over and they saw the blood of the lamb, they would pass over them. You see, the Passover lamb. And, and if there wasn't blood on the doorpost, the firstborn of that family would, be, would, pass, would pass away, would perish, would die that night. Jesus became the sacrifice, the Passover lamb for all who put their faith, hope, and trust in him. Romans 8, 23. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The wages of sin. We've all sinned. We've all inherited a sin nature from Adam. And we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. But the free gift. There's a free gift from God. 
and eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him, it's the Father, made Christ the Son to be sin, who knew no sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of Christ. This is what we call the great exchange or the double imputation. Our sin on the, at the cross, our sin went to Christ, given to him. And at the moment of our salvation, his righteousness is given to me. And now I stand clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so like, it, it goes back to in Genesis 3, when, when the Lord God killed animals and clothed Adam and Eve and animal skins to cover their nakedness and their shame, at the moment of our salvation, Christ's righteousness is imputed to me, it's given to me. So now I stand before God righteous, not because of my righteousness, but because of Christ. That's good news. Because I don't have anything. Scripture says that my righteousness, the best thing I have is as filthy rags. But I don't have my righteousness. I have the righteousness of Christ that is given to me. Because only he is sinless and perfect. And so I'm clothed in that. Titus chapter 3, verse 4 and 5. But the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. And he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. He saved us, not because of works done by us. But according to his own mercy, explanation of Christ, Ephesians 2, verse 4 through 9. It's a passage that many of you are familiar with. We're not saved by works so that none of us may boast. But we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's it. Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We're saved by grace, through faith, by trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And it's being explained in Matthew 121. When, now this is back to the Gospels, where Christ was made manifest, before he was made manifest, when the angel of the Lord was speaking to Joseph. And he was explaining to Joseph what was about to take place with the woman he was engaged to marry. That she would conceive as a virgin and bear a son. And you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people, his people from their sins. The epistles, Christ is explained. Number five, Revelation, Christ's consummation. And we're going to go to the book of Revelation, the end of it all, a consummation. This is the end of the story. If we go to Revelation chapter 22, Revelation 22, verse 7, and behold, I'm coming soon. Behold, I'm coming soon. Like, when is Christ coming back? Soon. Now you're like, well, what, what is soon? See, here's the thing. A thousand years, Scripture says, a thousand years is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years to the Lord. So in reality, since Christ's ascension until now, it's only been about two days. Two thousand years is like two days. When you step outside of time, we can't comprehend this, okay? But when you pass on and the Lord returns and you step out of time into eternity, you're not in, you're not in time. You're in the eternity past, present, and future all at the same time. You can see into the past. You see where you are. You see into the future. You're like, well, how does that work? I don't know. I don't know because I have this little meatball that's been dinged at least eight times now. And some of you are like, well, now I understand you a lot more. This was a mild one. I didn't forget that much. Just a little bit. I thought I 
never mind. Verse uh, 12, Revelation 22, verse 12. Jesus again in his revelation to John, he says, Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Here's the reality. Christ is coming soon. He's coming soon. And with him he will bring his recompense to repay everyone for what they have done. This is the consummation. Christ is coming back. The end of it all. It's all about Christ, the meta-narrative, okay? So we talked about the, the creation, the fall, redemption, and the consummation. So revelation is the consummation. Now what does it mean, the word consummation? It just means the point of which something is complete or finalized. The ultimate end or the finish. Now that takes me back to Revelation chapter 5. Now, you know, so many people read Revelation. And I think they miss the total point of the book. They get all caught up in the plagues and the, these, these kind of weird metaphors and pictures. And they get all caught up like, when's this going to happen? Like, it's really about Christ and that he will return and that he will be victorious. We don't know when he's going to come. We don't know what all the symbolism means. I believe the majority of it is symbolism, not literal. Um, I don't know how that all works. Here's what I know is Christ is going to come back. And when he comes back, he will rule and he will reign and he will crush his enemies under his feet. That's what I am certain of. Pre-trib, post-trib, all-mill, pre-mill. In the end, it doesn't matter. And some of you are like, what are you talking about? You're the better off. You're the better off. You have no idea what I just said. Revelation chapter 5, in this vision, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now, right there, I need you. Written within and on the back and sealed. Now, written within and on the back, what is that? Like, it was all filled up. There was no place to write anything else. It was, it was the final document, I think, is what John is trying to tell us. There was nowhere, nothing else could be altered in the document. It was the final document. And not only was it sealed, it was sealed with seven seals. This is the consummation. This is the final document. This is what Paul, or what John is revealing. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. In verse 5, and one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits that God sent unto the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, before the lamb, holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which they are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Worthy are you, are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, a people of, from every tribe and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked, and I heard the sound around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voices of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing 
To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. It's a consummation. It's all about Christ. It was anticipated. It was manifest. It was proclaimed. He was explained. Now it's his consummation. Now if we go back to Revelation 19, one of my favorite passages. Revelation 19, starting at verse 11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Remember back to John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Verse 14, And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, his name written, King of kings, Lord of lords. Christ is coming again. And Revelation reveals his consummation. Christ came the first time as a humble servant. When he comes back, he's coming back to make war on his enemies as a king of kings, as a lord of lords. The consummation, the final story, the end of all things. Christ is coming back. He's coming back to rapture his church to judge the world. The ultimate end. See, this book is ultimately, it's all about Christ. From Genesis 1 as our creator. Genesis 3.15, the redemption story. It all starts. We see creation, the fall, redemption, the consummation. It's all about Christ. In the Old Testament, it was anticipated. In the Gospels, he was manifest. In the book of Acts, he was proclaimed. In the epistles, he's explained. In a revelation, it's the consummation. It's the end of all things. This is all about Christ. It's only ever been about Christ. So how does that apply to us? What does this mean for us? Well, the gospel, we must read it all through gospel lenses. What is the gospel? The gospel is good news. The gospel is good news. But there's also bad news. Romans 8, 23. Romans 8, Romans 6, 23. For we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 8, 23. And the wages of that sin is death. Eternal death, separation from, a, from the love of a holy God in the presence of his constant wrath in a literal hell for all who don't put their faith, hope, and trust in Jesus Christ. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he sent his son because of the great love with which he loved you and me. To provide a way that we could be reconciled, redeemed, forgiven. There's no name under heaven with which to be saved other than Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. There's one way. And some people in arrogance would say, I can't believe there's only one way. In humility, we should say, I can't believe that God provided a way. I can't believe it that God would provide a way that I could be redeemed and reconciled and adopted and a co-heir with Christ. 
From Genesis to Revelation, it's about Christ and his redemptive story. The good news of the gospel is Jesus in my place. Jesus lived the life, his life perfectly, fulfilled the law for me. He lived in my place. He then died in my place as a perfect sacrificial lamb. He died for me, absorbing the wrath of God on my behalf and on your behalf. And he rose three days later victorious over Satan, sin, hell, and death. Victorious for us. Here's the thing. You can't earn your salvation. You can't. We're not saved by works. You're not saved by theology. You're not saved by your biblical knowledge. You're not saved by your righteous living. You're saved by Christ's righteous, perfect life. He earned your salvation. He paid for it. He earned it. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And when we think that we can add to the finished work of Jesus Christ by our own righteousness, our own theology, our own works, do you understand how offensive that is to the man who paid for everything? And there are people sometimes wrongly think, well, you don't know what I've done. Here's the reality. We've all caused the death of Christ. Every one of us. We've all worshipped and served other things other than the Creator God. Some of you think that you need to clean your life up before you come to God. You got it all wrong. You come to Him so He can redeem you, cleanse you come to him. When you understand the gospel, if you don't understand it, even as a Christian, even as someone who believes in the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you don't fully understand that when you sin, we have a tendency to want to run and hide. But when we really understand the gospel, we can go to him in a moment of need. We are a confessional church. What do I mean by that? I mean that we will confess our shortcomings. I'm going to live my life as your pastor, and I'm going to confess. I'm going to be a real person because I am a real person. I'm on the same journey you are. I'm not further ahead than you. I'm on the same journey. I have anger problems. I have patient problems. I, I have issues in my life. There's patterns of sin that I've struggled with for years. Your pastor, yes. We're going to be real about who we are because we can rest in the gospel. I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Not mine. Not in my works. Not in my righteousness. Not in my theology. Not in my knowledge of the scripture. All of those things are good and right. But they don't save me. They don't keep me. Only the finished work of Jesus. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, not even myself. And when you understand that, you can rest. And when you understand that in your moment of weakness, in your moment of sin, you can run to the Father instead of trying to hide from the Father. See the difference? It's all about Jesus. It's only ever been about Jesus. Jesus. Saved by grace alone, 
through faith alone and Christ alone. In Romans 10, it says, if you confess with your mouth that Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I don't know about you, but that seems too simple. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you'll be saved. But like, but Steve, you don't know what I've done. I don't, but God does. And Christ died for that. And you know, some of you are being held back. You believe that God has forgiven you. I've heard this so often. I've heard people say, like, They've, they've done something. They, they're feeling guilty. They're feeling condemnation, conviction. I said, do you believe that God can forgive you? Yes. Well, that's what, what's holding you back? And people literally say, I can't forgive myself. Now, when they say that, people think they're being really humble. But in fact, you're being really proud. You've just said that your standard is higher than God's. You've just said that God can forgive me and will, but I can't forgive myself. Who do you think you are? Do you see the pride in that? Do you see the lie of the enemy in that? When you understand the gospel and the overarching meta-narrative, and when you understand what Christ purchased and accomplished for you, even in your moments of greatest failure, you can run to the cross because I'm now clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It's not mine. Because I sin every day in thought, word, and deed. Every day. And so do you. And when we understand this, we can rest. We're not saved by works. We're not saved by our own righteousness. We're not saved by our theology. We're not saved by our knowledge of God's word. As a matter of fact, Jesus said in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness to me. It's all about Jesus. Our lives are hopeless without the gospel. We believe the realities of the gospel. And when they are confessed and believed and trusted, we can find rest. Rest. I believe so often we don't find rest as Christians. It's because we don't really believe the realities of the gospel. We don't trust it. We don't rest in it. We don't rest in our standing before God. My standing before God is set in the righteousness of Christ. Now, some of you immediately want to panic. Well, you're telling people this. Now they're going to go live however they want. No, because Scripture forbids that. That's, that's not biblical. See, ultimately, when you really understand what Christ did for you, when I understand what he did for me, he lived his life perfectly for me, and he died my death, he absorbed the wrath of God on my behalf, I don't want to trample the blood of Christ anymore. I do sometimes, and so do you, but we don't want to. And we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. See, faith that saves us is faith that is changing. It's conforming us to the image of Christ. Perfectly no, but increasingly yes. Does it make sense? Like, I'm not the person I was six months ago. I'm not the person I ought to be, but I'm not who I was. 
when you understand the redemptive story of Scripture, we can find rest. We can rest in our standing before God because Jesus' work is front and center. My life is in the background. His life, his work is in the center. That's what I have my eyes on, not on my life. My life is in the background. My, my focus is on Christ, who he is, and what he's done. But every person must respond to the gospel. So if you're here this morning and you've never responded to the gospel, I want to give you an opportunity to do that this morning. If you're here this morning and you know that you are still under the wages of your sin, you have never gone to the Lord for the forgiveness of your sins, you've never confessed before him, said, oh God, I am a sinner. If you have never asked him to forgive you and to redeem you and to fill you with his Holy Spirit and to change you, you've never surrendered your life to him I want to give you an opportunity to do that in a moment so I'm just going to ask you as a church just to bow your heads and close your eyes And if you're here this morning you've never responded to the gospel you feel like the Lord is tugging at your heart right now your heart is racing you're feeling sensing the presence and the nearness of the Lord in a way that you've never sensed or felt before and you want to acknowledge this morning before a holy God that you need his forgiveness. Would you just acknowledge that? I'm not going to call you front, but I want to identify you and pray with you right where you are. So just every head bowed and every eye closed, if that is you this morning, would you just slip up your hand right where you are? If you just want to acknowledge this morning before a holy God that, yes, you're a sinner and you need his salvation. If that's you, just slip up your hand high right where you are. you're here this morning and you have not been resting in the realities of the gospel. Just truly resting. And you want to acknowledge that before the Lord this morning. Would you just acknowledge that by slipping up your hand right where you are? I just want to pray with you as well. If you've not been resting in the realities of the gospel, just slip them up leave them up as I pray. Father, I just pray for my brothers and sisters who've acknowledged today that they're not resting in the realities of the gospel. I pray that those truths will become new and fresh in their minds again today. God, that they would find rest. That they would see and experience the reality of the finished work of Jesus Christ. That they would believe it by faith and they would live in that. Father, we thank you for the gospel. You may put your hands down. In Christ's name, amen.